Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. Thank you for your word, Father. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. This was after King Yeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials and the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan and Gomorrah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in the midst of you and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Thank you for the hearing of the word. Thank you, Sharon. I imagine that um, as we're reading our responsive reading today, that you probably didn't have the opportunity to read and process and digest and memorize everything that was in it, right? So, based on that, I wanted to take some time and um, revisit the meaning of slichot. Um, very, very uh, important word in the Hebrew Bible, yes. Uh, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, speaks about forgiveness and presents the basic confidence for people that as they followed God's plan and, and took uh, advantage of the atonement that the Lord has provided for them, that they were forgiven. Contrary, by the way, to um, some of the to, to the caricature that we sometimes um, hear by fellow believers in the church 
that the sacrificial system was essentially um, a dry run, as it were, until the coming of Yeshua, at which point there would be genuine atonement and forgiveness. Um, and so let me just take a moment, it's a bit of a tangent, that um, as offerings were brought, particularly the offerings that had to do with atonement and the chatat, the um, so-called sin or purification offering, when people laid their hands on the animal and confessed their sin before the priest, they were pronounced as forgiven. Um, and there was the restoration of their relationship with the Lord because of that one particular sin. So, slichot is something that um, is a custom, in a sense, uh, that is practiced differently by different people. But here in this country, uh, slichot is usually uh, practiced four days before Rosh Hashanah. And slichot um, is a collection of penitential prayers uh, prayers for Jewish people as they prepare for Rosh Hashanah. And um, they essentially talk about the sin of Israel and the fact that the suffering of the nation of Israel um, has been warranted, that God punished the nation because of its sin. Um, but it doesn't stop there because it emphasizes God's mercy. And, and it repeats a num on a number of occasions throughout these uh, prayers um, the merciful attributes of God that are found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. I'm sure you all know the uh, story in, in Scripture where Moses, right after the, um, the golden calf episode, Moses is a tad insecure because the Lord is ready to snuff out the nation of Israel. And Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, no, I'll show you my goodness. And he tucks him in behind, the, the, behind a, a rock and he zaps in front of him proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, Adonai, Adonai, Elevachum Bechanun, merciful and compassionate and so on. Um, it's a passage, by the way, that we come to from quite often, um, and that Scripture itself, particularly the Psalms, repeat those uh, attributes of God in a number of different places. It's hugely important for us to remember that God's essential character is not His anger, but His mercy. Um, and James puts it this way, that God's Mercy trumps his need for judgment and justice. I, I don't know about you, but that helps me with sanity. Um, because I, I'm well aware of the fact that perfection exists in one place and it's not down here. And that on any given day, if I were to hightail it to Jerusalem, for a particular sin, I would be doing nothing all day but shuttling back and forth from Jerusalem, uh, bringing animal sacrifices. And so I'm quite grateful that the Lord has provided a much more effective way 
So Slichot for us at Yeshua Tzion obviously is somewhat different. And yes, we acknowledge our sin. And yes, we acknowledge the fact that we are worthy of God's judgment. And folks, I hope that that's something you can um, come to terms with. That the Lord is merciful to you, not because you're cute and clever and exquisitely spiritual, but the Lord is merciful to you because He is merciful. That's His character. And of course, the second part of our particular version of Slichot is the fact that we feel very strongly that having received cleansing and forgiveness from God ourselves, then we don't stay there, but rather we understand our need to be available for God's mercy and atonement to be, to be poured out for those who don't know him, particularly the Jewish community during this time of year. The, the Jewish community that is seeking God for, for his mercy. And I just wanted to pause for a minute and talk about what it means to seek God. You know, th th this is one of these words that we use a lot of. You know, words such as magnify and glorify. You, you know, words that give us a nice warm feeling, but we really have no clue exactly what it means. What does it mean to seek God? Well, number one, it's obviously not a passive process. You don't sit there and think deep spiritual thoughts. Um, it's an active pursuing of God. And Hebrew in this text that Sharon read to us uses a couple of words, bakash and darash. And if you put the two of them together, what, what emerges is a couple of different insights. One of them is the fact that you pursue God with care. In other words, it's not a half-hearted kind of a, uh, a process where you say, eh, you know, I'm kind of bored today. I don't have anything to do. Um, I'm off work, and, and uh, my, all my to-do list items have been checked off, so I'll seek God. No. And secondly, there is the element from these two words of pursuing God with care. You know? Um, emotionally and cognitively and spiritually involved, every part of us, just like every Shabbat as we recite the, uh, the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and strength, it means every part of our being, every part of our fiber. You know, those of us who are eggheads like myself tend to relate to God cognitively, and then we have to learn how to love the Lord emotionally, and etc., etc. You know where I'm going with that. But uh, seeking God requires intensity. And as I was preparing, an episode uh, came to mind from our trip to Israel. And uh, we were in this place called Machtesh Ramon, which is the deepest um, um, crater. Thank you. Toda. That's what happens when you're, you speak more than one language. It kind of 
to get stuck in your brain sometimes. And um, so we, we spent the day, you know, did the touristy kinds of things. And um, in a bed and breakfast, lovely couple, they just went somewhere and let us have the run of the house. In the morning, we get up and time to reload the car and and uh, they had a dog. And Joy opens the gate in order to walk from the house to the car and the doggy decides that he is bored and he needs to get some air. <laughs> and he takes off and our grandson takes off right after him. And there was absolutely no rational, logical thought in his brain. The dog went, and he had to go after the dog. And you can imagine as in a parental role, um, your, your heart is beating, and every part of your brain says, freak out. Yes, this is a good time to freak out. <laughs> And uh, I've experienced it in different situations um, where we've gone, you know, to fairs and, and uh, different events, and both with our daughter and uh, our grandson. And you look, and they're gone. And you begin to do one of these things. And uh, this time, somehow the Lord gave me something inside to stop and say, okay, Lord. Um, you love this boy more than I do. Please take care of him, and I release him to you. It was a quick little prayer, kind of calm me down. We got in the car, and when looking for him, we were seeking Isaiah. In all senses of the word, and um, and, and we're driving, driving, driving. We don't find him, and. Um, this is not a community where a lot of people speak English. And he doesn't speak a whole lot of Hebrew yet. <laughs> Being prepared for his bar mitzvah. And, um, and this was the day, this is the week, when three yeshiva uh, Jewish Orthodox boys were, were kidnapped. And um, you can imagine everything running through our brain. And we realized that we were not getting the job done, so we turned around and come back. And there he is. He stands there. And then he says to us, um, some man picked me up. <laughs> and uh, I told him that I was looking for the dog, and he brought me back here. And, you know, again, y you have a mixture of emotions, thoughts that are absolutely irrational because as a parent, grandparent, you hear all the stories and you tell your kids not to go with strangers. He goes with the stranger, he comes back. We settle down, the dog comes back and it was one of these experiences where I felt like the Lord taught me a major lesson about what it means to seek him with passion, with intensity, with desire, with the fact that somehow God is able to 
respond to my seeking him. And, and, and folks, part of what boggles me again and again and again is when I raise the subject, people look at me as if I'm speaking some uh, Klingon dialect when I speak about seeking God and finding him and being able to relate, relate and connect to him because the attitude much of the time is, who, me? And the short version is, of course, yes, you. And uh, we saw that last Shabbat. You know, uh, at the end, in at the end, at, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, remember the scenario where Moses is along with Israel on top of the mountains of Moab, overlooking down into Israel, and he's preparing them by um, reiterating and explaining to them what the Torah was about, and. Uh, and he's predicting the fact that they'll screw up. Uh, you know, if you were an Israelite listening to that, they would not give you the warm fuzzies. And, and he, he talks about how that God would have to scatter them in exile. And then he makes this statement, but if from there you seek the Lord, your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Even in the situation where, where you have done awful stuff and God was forced to discipline you and punish you because otherwise his, wor his word would not be worth spit. Um, even in that situation, God is waiting and the sign on his door says, welcome, please come in and stay a while even in that situation. And you know, folks, one of the reasons we don't see God is because we have this deep conviction that we're not worthy of seeking God because of all the stupid and awful and sinful things that we do. And so our natural inclination is to say, I'm not worthy that God would respond to me, so why should I seek God? And so we lose interest and we become very insecure about who the Lord is and his love for us. And he is willing to stand and wait and wait and wait and wait for us despite all the foolish things that we've done. So Moses <clears throat> was predicting that. And here in the section that Sharon was reading six, about 600 years later what Moses was predicting back here in Deuteronomy 4 happened um, and is about to be played out fully. Um, just to bring you up to speed, about 125 years before Jeremiah's time, the Assyrians, uh, which by the way is where ISIS is situated at this point, the Assyrians came and swept over Israel and took the northern ten tribes into exile. Then the Babylonians, about a hundred years or so later, started to do the same thing with Judah, the southern kingdom, 
And by the way, you have three waves of exiles that were done by the Babylonians. They came once, they came twice, they came the third time. After the third time, they finished the job, as it were. So the first time they took some of the nobility, including Daniel. Then the second time they came, um, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, conquered Jerusalem, didn't destroy it, uh, took the king along with a majority of the people, including Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and the, the, poor, the poorest of the population was still left. And I don't know about you, if I was, if, if I were in that situation, light bulb go, would go on in my mind, and I would say, okay, we're in trouble. Um, God, where are you? And we need your help. And what you find in Israel's better moments is that when crises, national catastrophes came, that there was a groundswell of mourning and repentance. And at this point, nothing is happening from the top down, beginning with the king and the rest of the population. And so, as you can imagine, if you don't have the, the king and what leadership is left, then uh, there is a saying, nature abhors a vacuum. That whenever there is, seems to be a vacuum, you're going to get all kinds of wackos rushing in to present their version of reality. And that's exactly what is happening here. If you go back and read chapter 28 of Jeremiah and, and go through chapter 28 and 29, you'll find four false prophets that are named who were flourishing at this point and saying all kinds of things primarily such as don't listen to this idiot Jeremiah he really doesn't know what's going on and listen to me because I have the straight word of God by the way in addition to those four false prophets you have a number of others that are not mentioned you know human nature uh, sometimes when things don't fit our paradigm, then we look for people, as Paul describes it, people who would tickle our ears because our ears are itching. Which means that we want people to come and tell us nice, smooth things. Um, things that are somewhere bordering on fantasy. You know, things are going to turn out, everything is going to be fine. God loves you. He cares for you. He has a wonderful plan for you. Uh, he wants to bless you regardless of the fact that you really deserve to get a major spanking. And that's essentially what, what you have in Jeremiah's time. By the way, there's nothing new under the sun. Human nature hasn't changed. You know, the number of false teachers who claim to either be outright the Messiah themselves or else claim to hear from God and say all kinds of things um, boggles the mind. And by the way, I hope you notice that our purpose is not to stand here and tell you all about the false teachers. Our purpose is to tell you about the Word of God. 
It's, it, it, the metaphor that comes to mind is that the agents of the treasury are not taught to study all the counterfeits, but rather they're given a, a bona fide treasury bill and they're taught to study it in great detail so that as they study it in great detail, when a counterfeit comes along, they're able to spot it. So our conviction is to simply say, I want, we want to go deeper in the Word of God so that we have discernment from the Lord because that's where we want to focus because that's, the, the, that's where we want our noses to be pointing. And whenever there's false teachers, Murphy's Law, if it's possible for falsehood to come, falsehood will come that we basically look at and say, okay, not interested. You know, slam the telephone. Um, not interested in buying any of that. But part of the picture that is happening here, I think as you read chapter 29, there's a basic rebellion against God's prescription and people's attitude, in essence, is um, things, were not, uh, things are not going to be bad. Um, we're not going to be in exile very long, and so let's, there is a problem, we'll try to fix it. And this is something that Rabbi David and I have um, shared on quite a bit in, in our earlier discussion of walking after the spirit versus walking after the flesh. Not something that unfortunately a lot of people understand because it's too simple. And the simplicity of what walking by the flesh means that we're not willing to yield control to God because we figure we can fix it. And we have absolutely no understanding that our lives have to be about God's power and God's wisdom. So in essence, God is squeezed out of the picture. And so Jeremiah is speaking to these folks again and again and again, trying to get their attention. And by the way, what he's doing here, he's sending a letter that is sort of like in a uh, diplomatic pouch because you have a special, a couple of special messengers who are coming to Babylon, and he gives them this letter. So the letter, in a sense, is conveying one basic fact, and that is simply that God is committed and that he is still engaged. Now, part of reality is, again, coming back to our insecurity that when we know we have failed, we're convinced that the right thing for God to do is to th throw us under the bus. That's all we deserve. Not realizing a couple of basic facts, and that is, first of all, even when we fail, guess what, folks? God is still in control. 
You know, our failure doesn't derail God's plans. And second of all, that's very connected to the first, is God continues to love us. Even though on some level we feel like, well, the only thing he really should do is kick us. And so we have this horrible opinion. Just We saw something similar in, in Ezekiel in the vision of the dry bones. Um, you know how that the bones came together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and uh, the interpretation involved the horrible insecurity of the nation of Israel that at that point were saying, um, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. And so think about it, folks. Um, it's a double whammy. Because we, we sin, we fail, and then, of course, there are consequences that go along with that. And then because we sin, we fail, then we shut God out of the picture. Because we're convinced that we need to be the ones to fix it. We're convinced that God is disgusted and put off with us. And so we're left on our own. Or we think we're left on our own. And so we flail, we flail, we flail, we flail some more. Um, and how does God get our attention? Well, let, let, let me tell you a little analogy from life-saving. Way back in the uh, dim and distant past, I took a, a course in life-saving. And one of the things they taught us was that you try to avoid getting in the water in order to save someone who's drowning. But if you absolutely have to do that because you've tried everything else, it doesn't seem to work, and you get in, one of the things you may end up having to do is cold cock the individual and knock him out so that he doesn't bring you down and bring himself down. So the application is that sometimes God has to do that. He has to bring us to a point where, where he finally gets us to where we shut up. And we say, okay, Lord, I get it. Um, I don't have the answers. You apparently do. So please speak to me. And yes, I will be quiet. And part of the, the picture here is that sometimes God has to discipline us. You know, not one of these fun kinds of words in our culture, including the believing culture that always goes on and parrots the notion of God loves you and he always has good things for you and he will never allow anything bad to come into your life. You want to say to these kinds of folks, um, what planet have you been on? Part of reality, scriptural reality, is the fact that we are, when we are rebellious, when we are stupid to pursue our own way, especially after God has done all kinds of things to get our attention, part of what he will have to do 
is bring us to, bring us to a point where we are disciplined. Where bad things happen to what we consider t- to good people. And it's very clear in this, in this text here, folks. We, of course, think that Nebuchadnezzar came and, and the, the big bad Babylonians came and, and they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, they hauled everybody off to exile. Jewish answer is yes and no. Because what is being said again and again here, three times, uh, is the fact that the one who did the hauling off to exile was not Nebuchadnezzar, but God. Let, let, let me give you a couple of examples. This is what the Lord God, the, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those whom I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is 29 to verse 4, then 29 verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you, to which I have carried you into exile. Very causative kind of thing. I made it happen. Same thing in verse, verse 14. I will bring back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have banished you. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Notice the language. He is not saying, I permitted it. I, w- I was too weak to do anything about it. No, I was actively engaged and saw to it that you guys would be brought into exile. That's pretty scary language, isn't it? But do remember that from the time that Israel really started to go way off track until this point is roughly about 400 years. Wouldn't you say that God has been very patient? And yet part of the picture here is is the fact that God is able to transcend Israel's sin. And folks, you read the prophets over and over and over again. Yeah, they're, it's graphic and it's, and it's distressing about God's anger, God's judgment. But make sure you notice in the prophets all the promises of God's restoration that he's able, despite the sin, to bring about restoration. So part of the message here that God is saying to Israel, and I believe he is also saying to us, when you find yourself in a place of failure where you've made poor choices and you've done stupid things and you've sinned, don't try to fix it. But rather learn learn to rest in the fact that God is greater than your sin and your stupidity. And that way you find yourself in that kind of situation. You learn to apply his prescription, his recipe. 29.5, build houses, settle down. Settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons. Daughters, find wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. 
increase in number there. Do not decrease. Again, notice, folks, the fact that this is going to take place where? In the land of their enemies, the pagans, that supposedly is controlled by by uh, a form of Baal, you know, the, the Papa God. And in that place, God's saying to them, settle down, do what you need to do to establish, and I will see to it that you flourish the land of your enemies. And I say that because, and l- let me mount soapbox here for a few minutes. What I see over and over and over again that I find extremely distressing is people park on the evils of our government and, and they look at that and, and they're convinced that, that what's taking place in this country is beyond God's control. And I, and I see stuff on Facebook and, and different arenas and I think to myself, okay, yes, I understand but where's your trust in God? Where's your trust in God? And furthermore, where's your willingness to obey the word of God that says very explicitly, requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. And this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Folks, if we don't understand that our life and our country somehow is under God's rule, we have a problem. And we need to revisit what the Word of God says and see whether, whether or not we're willing to believe it. A parallel scripture came to mind as I was reading Psalm 37. I just want to read a few verses. And by the way, one of those verses is part of the songs that we were singing, the worship songs we were singing earlier today. Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Not a Lamborghini. But if you understand that life is really about the Lord, then you're going to say, Lord, I want more of you. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause, like the noonday sun. Then especially the, the following verse. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Boy, the, those are a couple of the toughest commandments, isn't it? Aren't they? Be still. In other words, not a peep coming out of you. Dom. 
you get things, difficult things happen, don't get rattled. Don't start to pour, to pour forth like a volcano. Mouth control begins with a quiet heart, folks. Be quiet before the Lord. Wait patiently. We've talked about that quite a bit off and on. An active, an active waiting where we're depending on God that He will do great things. And here's another command in, in, that, uh, in that verse, Psalm 37, 7. Do not fret. Now, inquiring minds want to know, and I wanted to know, what does it mean to fret? Biblically. And I look at the Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word fretting had to do with burning with anger. Well, think about it. Things aren't quite going your way and you get rattled and, and you get stirred and something inside of you, you feel like you're going to burst or you're going to kick something or somebody. If you know the basic reality that God is in control, that he's managing things, then you'll have no reason to get to a, to a point where your blood vessels are ready to pop. Settle down is what Jeremiah is saying and what Psalm 37 is saying. Settle down and learn to rest in God's active, loving, sovereign control and intervention in your life. Coming back to Jeremiah, Israel is given, or Judah is given this command, which seems to be very bizarre from our perspective. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And you say, What? This is very counterintuitive. Well, if somebody is my enemy, then by definition, he's an enemy of God. And so, Lord, I'll pour down your wrath upon them. Cause their teeth to fall out and their women to be barren. Let's see what other kind of blessings can I uh, proclaim on them. Is it always true that our enemies are God's enemies? And even when we, there are things and people and, and principalities and powers that are opposed to us, is God not sovereign? Listen to what he's saying about Assyria, the, the, the nasty quasi-Nazis of, of that day and age. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The rod of my anger. In other words, a tool that I have used. And part of reality, folks, is we tend to look around and we have a very myopic perspective. We feel like, well, God has to bless us because we are his people. And so he doesn't really care. He's not particularly interested about the pagans around us. 
Um, is that a scriptural perspective? Mm, I think not. Why else would the Lord say to Jeremiah to tell the exiles to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city? Maybe, just maybe, God wants to bless those around us who don't know him so that they would have an opportunity to wake up and, and consider who he is because what, what they see in us and also what they experience. And we, in a sense, are exiles, folks. Scripture tells us that over and over again, particularly in Hebrews 11. And part of what we need to guard against is an attitude where we retreat into, into a believing ghetto and, and we see everybody, us versus them. And we don't understand that maybe God wants to be active involved in other folks as well through us. And yes, there are things we don't understand. But do remember that the commandment in Timothy for the believers to pray for those in governments was given during the time of crazy Nero. This is the time when, when, when this guy would haul believers and, and feed them to the lions. And yes, we don't have great answers about ISIS or ISOLO or whatever you call them. But maybe, just maybe, God is able to deal with them as well. With drones or without, without drones. So the bottom line that Jeremiah is trying to communicate here is in difficult circumstances, God's people have to learn to rest in his gracious and sovereign plans. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to, to this place. Notice what he's saying, I will bring you back according to your calendar? No, according to my calendar. When the timing according to my definition has matured, then yes, I will carry out what I feel needs to happen to you and for you. Also part of verse 10, he speaks about uh, establishing or confirming, that's very much covenant language that we've seen in Abrahamic covenant. The point simply is, you and I who have chosen to follow Yeshua are part of a covenant relationship with God. And he's committed to us. He's committed to us, folks. And part of the fact that he's committed to us is simply the fact that there are, because we're part of his covenant, he has good plans for us. And what I find intriguing is that we typically 
end up quoting Jeremiah 29, 11, yank it out of context, and, and, and when someone is rebellious, then we want to say to them, God has good plans. I have good plans for you, not good plans to bless you, not to harm you. And you say, okay, yes, that's correct. However, God's discipline, God's loving discipline still has to come. And this is what, what is amazing, folks, is at the bottom of the pit, when we are at the bottom of the pit, is where we experience the hand of God, God's gracious hand, most vividly, most powerfully in our life. Because we realize we don't deserve it. And also God shows himself stronger than Baal and all the other idols that we worship. Even in the pit, once we get that, the Lord says to Israel and he says to us, and you will call me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. Again, when we fail, the sign on God's door says, welcome. Come on in and stay. But it requires some basic heart, some basic passion that we come and seek the Lord, not as in, oh, well, I have nothing better to do, but that we pursue the Lord. It's intriguing that, that the language here in Hebrew is very emphatic. You, you have a list of action words that are given boom, 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 boom. In other words, to convey urgency, you will call upon me, you will come, you will pray to me, you will seek me. Then we're told, and you will find me. And God responds. God's response. And this is the amazing things, the amazing aspect of what we see here and what we saw in Deuteronomy 4. Israel sinned. You and I sin. And there's no reason on earth why God should be responsive to us but he is and where we need the discipline he deals he provides the needed discipline by the way he, biblically discipline is not just oh go away you bug me I'm going to whoop you but rather you need to learn and that's what discipline is about Quit fuming and fussing. Be quiet. Learn to rest in God's strategy. And then look for God's sign saying, come on in and stay a while. Let's pray.
Abba Father, we are absolutely amazed at your patience and your mercy, your compassion for us, Lord. Um, how that you look at us at times, Lord, when we have sinned, when we have failed, and you're not repulsed by us, Lord, but rather you seek to draw near to us. And you beckon to us, you welcome us to come. And Lord God, you know the heart of every single person here today. You know, Lord, our particular struggles, our particular parts of the journey. Lord God, we, uh, we pray for eyes to see you. Eyes to see you, Lord God. For soft hearts to accept who you are, the truth of who you are, Lord. And Lord God, a the simple, strong desire, Lord God, to uh, turn to you and seek you and find you, Lord, in ways that we never have before. So we ask, Lord God, that you would do that today, that you would do that as we wait upon you, as we worship you, Lord God. Simply pray, Lord, that you would expose falsehoods and lies and that uh, the truth of your word, Lord God, would shine brightly for us, that we would embrace it both hands, both feet, Lord. And uh, we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.